quickly, just uh, by way of short review, um, what, what is, first of all, what is the second commandment? Someone remind us, what does the second commandment say? Okay, good, excellent. And when we, we looked at the specific language of the second commandment, and uh, what did we say about what, what is a graven image, as the text says? What does that refer to? Yeah, good. Anything that's uh, well said, anything that we use that would be a representation of what or whom we worship in a very generic sense. So that could be uh, anything made out of wood or stone or metal or uh, a painting or anything along those lines. Anything that is a standing in representation of uh, whatever it is that we worship. And, uh, and so we... we spent some time talking about that in relationship, especially to the ancient world and their use, excuse me, of, um, of images, of statues, of, of carvings, of whatever, in terms of uh, standing in place of their gods. And we see that uh, today in various uh, worship practices, especially among uh, Hindus, uh, for example, uh, temples everywhere in India that are dedicated to their gods. But what did we say about those? Are they worshiping uh, the object itself? What's going on there? Tris says no. That's a good start. <laughs> so what, what is going on there? What's, what's actually being done with that object? Yeah, good. It's, it's the idea that this object is a placeholder, if you will, but we're worshiping the God who this represents. And so it's not that they're, while they're bowing down to a statue, for example, um, it's not the statue itself, it's who the statue is supposed to represent or um, who embodies the statue or whatever it is that's believed about it. And so um, I think it's important to remember that because we tend to uh, think, well, who's stupid enough to bow down to a, uh, a, a statue? And in reality, it's a little more, uh, there's a little more to it than that. Nevertheless, it's still, uh, it's still quite problematic as, as we know. And, uh, and yet, that carries over. It was important enough for the Lord to address it in the Ten Commandments, right? Because this was a regular practice, and we see that even among those who were God's people. So what example did we look at last week with regard to this happening among God's people? Yeah, the golden calf, right? While the law was being received on Mount Sinai... Aaron is organizing God's people down below, and they are, they are designing, contrary to what they said, they're actually designing this uh, golden calf to stand in the place of God, right? They wanted something to be a placeholder for God, something tangible they could see, they could feel, that could represent for them who it is that they were worshiping. And you remember Moses came and was so angry that he... Uh, he dropped the tablets and had to go back and have all that uh, redone and everything else. So um, this is, we can see this all throughout history. Uh, mankind is quick to be drawn to placeholders for God. And so 
there are many good reasons why God has commanded what he has in the second commandment. Uh, but the one that God specifically states is in verses 4 and 5 of Exodus 20. So look there, Exodus 20. Uh, specifically in verse 5. <coughs> he gives a command in 4, You shall not make for yourself a carved or a graven image. And then in verse 5, he says, You shall not bow down to them or serve them. And here's his reason why. For I am the Lord your God, and I am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but, verse 6, showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. So there's several things going on here. The first reason that the Lord mentions why he's commanding this is what? What does he say? He's a jealous God. Now, what does that mean? Jealousy seems like a bad thing, right? So what does he mean? Okay. Okay, good. Charlie, did you want to add to that? Yeah, good. So he's, uh, God being God demands exclusive service, exclusive worship, exclusive uh, devotion from all of creation and specifically his people. And so God's passion, if you will, God's, uh, God's love is in such that he wants to offer to all of creation what is greatest. And what is greatest? Himself. And so if God wants to give us what is the best, he has to give us himself. And in so doing, he is jealous that he would receive all of the worship. And so it needs to be protected. What is the greatest needs to be protected at all costs. And so the jealousy of God is a guarding of his rightful possession. He deserves worship. He deserves glory. He deserves honor that nobody else deserves. And so he is jealous. He wants to protect that because no one else is deserving of it. And nor should giving any of it to anyone or anything else be a service to us. Yeah, Derek. Yes, exactly. In fact... Uh, to, say, um, <clears throat> to say that that wouldn't be the case would mean that there's a deficiency in that relationship, right? That um, if we just said, well, I don't care, you know, yeah, I like my spouse, but I don't care if, if they share that affection for me with other people. Um, that's, that's a problem. <laughs> We're going to have some words. <laughs> right? So what God is so jealously protecting in the second commandment is what he tells us in verse 6. His steadfast love for thousands. It's for his honor, for his glory, because of his love. And so God not only loves us, but as a result of him being who he is and what he is, he wants us to love him because that's what's best for us. And we don't often think of it in that way, but God's demand for the love and devotion of all of creation is what is greatest for us. There's nothing greater than God can offer than himself. And so among other things, what this means is worshiping him in a way that is worthy of his honor. 
We ought not to worship God in any way other than what he desires because as the greatest being, as the, cre- as, as the creator of all things, he deserves, he has the right uh, to determine how it is that he wants this devotion to come to him. He has the right to tell us how he wants to be worshipped, when he wants to be worshipped, and uh, his command for us is that we not spurn his love by turning something into an idol that we would have stand in the place of him because nothing, nothing at all is going to be good enough to represent who God truly is. Rob? Good. Excellent example. We, uh, we touched briefly on that last week and, and, um, and t- talked about this reality that it's so easily and so quickly becomes for us that when we see anything that reminds us of, of the Lord that gives us some, uh, some recollection of something God has done or anything along those lines, our tendency of our hearts is to be drawn to that in a way that is uh, contrary to what God has commanded. And so very quickly, those, this becomes an object of worship that was never intended to be an object of worship. And there's so many things we see like that throughout uh, the Scriptures, and, uh, and we, see, uh, we see today as well. Um, and we'll, we'll talk about that a bit more. And this really, uh, this really leads into this conversation big time about how we, uh, how we think about artistic renderings of the things of God. Um, before we get to that, let's think about very quickly uh, the rest of the text. What, what does it mean, uh, or what, what, is, what is God promising here if we fail to submit to this commandment? What is the warning that is given? Okay, so the warning is that the children will be punished for the sins of their fathers. Well, that has been misinterpreted through the years uh, quite a lot. Um, but this, this word, uh, he talks about, um, let's see, in uh, verse 5, he says, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children. It refers to something that is, uh, that is twisted. It suggests idolatry. It suggests perversion, a turning against God. Okay, so as we think about images, it may seem very religious to have icons. You know what icons are? They're religious paintings that depict um, either Jesus or Mary or the saints, whoever, uh, whoever that was supposed to be or whatever. So they're, they're pictures depicting uh, religious things or biblical things, and they're painted in a very specific way. And so it may seem very religious, it may seem very spiritual to have these things and images and idols, uh, statues or whatever else, but God forbids the very things that seem to be so enticing to the heart and desire something beyond how God has chosen to reveal himself to us and how he's commanded us uh, to worship him beyond these things. Because idolatry is actually a way of showing a hatred for God. And that's, that's what he's saying here. So it's not surprising that God threatens this, this penalty for those who do something so hateful. That I, I would think so little of God that I would think I would be able to contain him in some kind of image or in some kind of statue. And if you do that, then the result is going to be that there is, uh, there is some kind of penalty for that. Now, 
Is this just? Many people will question that. How can God judge children for the sins of their father? This causes a lot of confusion for people. Uh, Ezekiel 18, 2 Chronicles 25, same kind of thing comes up. God promises that men and women would be punished, though, we see throughout the Bible, for their own sin and not for the sins of their father. So how do we deal with this? Uh, there's, there really is no contradiction, as we find with Scripture. There's no doubt that children suffer greatly for the sins of their parents. Isn't? I mean, that's reality, right? If parents sin, their children will have to suffer consequences of that, not because they did anything, but like any sin, everyone around us suffers. And so if it's the parents who do that, then the, the children unfortunately, have the consequences of that fall upon them as well. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, from, from day one, the first uh, children from the first, the first parents. Um, and, and we can all think in our own lives of ways that we have sinned, and as a result, if we have children, that our children have uh, had to bear some of the consequences of that. Um, and so God's not you know, by some arbitrary de- decree here, being uh, vengeful or uh, being uh, vindictive, he's just simply stating what we would consider a law of nature. Uh, this is something that falls out as a result. It's the consequences of our actions. And we see that every time we sin, uh, we, whether it's our children, our spouse, our friends, our church family, or whatever else. And so this is an unavoidable reality that falls... Uh, on us as we are in a household. <laughs> it's going to happen. So imagine what this looks like then. If, uh, if you have parents in a home and their devotion is to a God that is represented by a statue or by an icon or whatever it is, what is, uh, you know, we've all, if you don't have children, you've spent time with children. Um, in general, what is a child's relationship to their parent going to produce in terms of our showing them this is what uh, we worship? How are they going to respond to that? They're going to do the same thing, right? Their mindset, their mentality is, well, these are my parents. They love me. They, uh, I can trust them. They're not going to lead me astray. They want what's best for me. And so the, the natural inclination of their hearts is going to be to go that way. And so what are the results that they too uh, think of God in these ways? Not in the ways of Scripture, but in the ways of an image or a statue or whatever it is. So it's a fundamental law of humanity that we never uh, deal with sin in and of ourselves. It is something that has far-reaching consequences in everyone else's lives as well. And we show our children how to live, and by passing on our idols, we're representing to them our priorities. Now, there's a lot of things we could talk about right there in that statement, um, but uh, for the sake of staying on topic, I won't go into all of that. But we all have idols that we pass on to our children, and we need to be very aware of what those are in our own lives, that we, not, that we do the best that we can by, by God's help. Uh, to not pass those on. So, uh, what then, um, that's the warning, but what's the, the promise? What if man obeys God's law? What does he tell us? Good. Yeah, very straightforward, showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. Very straightforward, right? 
If you love me, and Jesus said the same thing, if you love me, you'll do what I command. Parents, that's a very, uh, that's a very good thing to tell your children. Jesus said it to us, but we can say it to our children. If you love me, you want to represent, you want to display your love toward me as your parent, you'll do what I ask of you. That's a very tangible way for you to show your love uh, in the same way that God has said that of us. If we love the Lord, we're going to want to obey him. And so this is a promise. And of course, the promise is far greater than the warning, isn't it? The warning is uh, the iniquity on fathers, on children to the third and fourth generation. The promise of obedience is to thousands. Right, so we have, in just terms of, in terms of quantity, the Lord is, is quantifying this and saying, I bless those uh, who obey me far more than I'm bringing any penalty to those who, who hate me, which shows God's mercy and God's kindness uh, right there in this very law. <coughs> Excuse me. Now, let's think about this more now in terms of this idea about images, statues, everything else. We have the commandment. We have a general understanding of what is being commanded, what the promise is, what the, uh, what the uh, penalty is for not obeying. So, what do we think about images? Images that are meant to depict something about God or to depict God himself or to depict Jesus um, there's, there's a lot of discussion about this. Now, the church, uh, throughout church history, this, is, this has always been a major issue. It became a very significant issue in the time of the Reformation. This is one of the things that uh, the Reformers wanted uh, to address because of what they saw, obviously, to be the excesses of Roman Catholicism with regards to uh, images and uh, icons and statues and everything else. So if you've ever uh, visited uh, John the Baptist, um, the uh, cathedral downtown in Savannah, you know exactly what I'm talking about. You walk in there, and in some ways it is, uh, it, it's captivating because it's, uh, it's designed to be that way with the very high ceilings and these ornate uh, art and design. It's, it's really something to see. But at the same time, as you look around, what are the walls covered with? They're covered with all kinds of images and depictions of God and the Lord and angels and everything else. So um, how do we think about this in relationship to this commandment? <coughs> and uh, how do we think about this in relationship, I, I think I mentioned briefly last week, that we see in the scriptures that no one has seen God God doesn't have a body like man, so how could we even depict God uh, if we, we've never seen him and he doesn't have a body? At the same time, what do we think about depictions of, of Jesus, who clearly was a man, had a body? Uh, is that the same thing? Does, that, does Jesus fall under what we're seeing in the second commandment? So, I mean, let me start by asking this. What did Jesus look like? <laughs> Blonde hair, blue eyes, obviously, yes. <laughs> he, 
He had a beard, okay? We know he had a beard. How do we know Jesus had a beard? Yes, because as he's being crucified, as he was being led to Golgotha, it tells us his beard was being ripped out, right? How, yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Good. So it wasn't, in terms of his physical appearance, was not someone who just stood out, everyone looked at and was like, wow, that guy is something else, right? He was just a normal-looking Galilean. Yeah. Yeah, so there are things we can, we can infer from certain things, sure. He's a man, yes, we got that. We, 2019, it's good to clarify. Do we know anything else about how Jesus looked? Yeah, I think there's a very good reason why the Bible doesn't tell us how Jesus looked. I think there's a very good reason why we don't have pictures uh, that were drawn or images that were provided for us of how Jesus looked. Uh, because what is our tendency? Yes. <coughs> and so, very quickly, and I'll, I'll give you an example of this, and I'll use my own, uh, my own grandmother. Was, uh, she was a devout Roman Catholic, and she had a... She had a picture hanging on her wall of uh, what, um, I don't know if you're familiar with <clears throat> something uh, that's called the Shroud of Turin. And the idea behind the Shroud of Turin was that they thought they found, uh, or they claimed to have found the garments that Jesus was wrapped in, and uh, there was a, an Im- image or an imprint of his face on these uh, garments. Well, in the same way that people find Mary on a piece of toast or whatever else, I think uh, we're in that realm. But this became a very popular thing. Well, she had this image hanging up in her house, and it was, uh, it was a very, uh, an object of, of devotion to her. Uh, in her mind, this was what Jesus looked like and who he was, and therefore, uh, every time she thought about Jesus, this is the image that she had in her mind. And this became a part of her, this became a part of her worship. So, um, we would all have that tendency, right? If we assume we know or we have something uh, that looks like or is uh, a, a depiction of the Lord, what is our heart going to do? It's going to be drawn to that in our worship. And so every time I think of the Lord Jesus, that's what I'm going to think of. And so I think the Bible is very... Uh, it's. I shouldn't say specific. It's very nonspecific with regard to what Jesus looked like because of that very thing, that we don't have all of the information. Again, culturally, we can infer a lot of things. Um, More likely than not, he actually probably had short hair and not long hair based on Jewish law and practice. Uh, He probably was olive-skinned. He probably had brown eyes. Uh, He probably wasn't very very tall, but maybe built. Um, But... We don't know any of those things because the Bible doesn't tell us specifically. Charlie. Yeah, it's a great question. That's, that's a part of the, like I said, there, you know, even in the reform world, there's debate over those kinds of questions and certainly where, uh, where we're headed in this. I think um, in terms of any depictions of the Lord, where, where do we draw the line? Nothing at all? Are uh, is it, you know, maybe 
uh, a picture of uh, the Lord teaching people on the beach from the boat. And so you have a picture of a boat out on the water, and there's this little dot out there, and that's just to show us that someone's on the boat, but there's no depiction, as you will, of, of who that is. Is that different than someone drawing uh, a portrait that's supposed to be Jesus or someone acting in a, a movie uh, as Jesus? Or, uh, you know, there, there's differing degrees of this. So how do we differentiate or, or do we just say the commandment forbids all of this? So that's a big, big discussion. Tyler, then Jeff. Yeah, good. Also part of the debate, part of the bigger discussion. If, if a burning bush is uh, supposed to be, uh, well, not supposed to be, is, according to Scripture, is uh, how God was revealing himself at the time, is this depiction of a burning bush, uh, is this something that relates to the commandment in this? Jeff? Yeah, well, and... Um, You'll be hard pressed to find agreement on this, uh, quite honestly. Yeah. Yeah. You wonder how many people's uh, idea of what Jesus looks like is Jim Caviezel and uh, <laughs> the Passion of the Christ, right? That that's that's become this image, and so if you're to see that guy on the streets, it's like, oh, there's Jesus, right? <laughs> yeah, Derek, or or Morgan Freeman, right? In that, what was that movie that he was in? Yeah. Right. They didn't recognize him, right. My personal conviction is I think about this on a, on a spectrum. And on one end, I think, is, um, is the actual, like, um, especially in things like film, that someone is standing in the place of and saying, I'm representing Jesus uh, in acting or whatever else. Uh, to me, that is, um, I believe, strongly convicted that that's a blatant um, uh, violation of the second commandment. Um, the, the, the other end of the spectrum, I think, are um, something along the lines of, like I mentioned, that you have this boat out in the water, and there's, you know that that's, this is showing something we saw in the Bible of Jesus teaching the people on the beach, but there's no, there's no attempt to try and give any kind of form or any kind of image with regard to what Jesus looked like or who he was. Yeah. It's, uh, <laughs> so you, but you move up that spectrum, and then you start getting into things like cartoon drawings. Is a, is, a, is a children's cartoon page with something that is supposed to represent Jesus, um, is, is that the same as... Uh, someone who has drawn uh, everyone's, uh, you know, the 1970s uh, image of blonde-haired, blue-eyed Jesus hanging on everyone's uh, living room wall in the mid- Midwest. Um, like, is that, like, there's a difference, right? No, n- nobody's looking at a cartoon and saying, this is reality, uh, but some will look at this and say, well, that's more of a portrait. And so some have erred on the side of saying, well, as a result of that, Let's just not have images at all. Or uh, you have some, R.C. Sproul being one of them, that says there is a, a good and right place for these things uh, for, as tools of teaching, as, uh, as images that are appropriate within the church even. 
um, not as objects of worship, which I think Jeff had mentioned earlier about not being something that we bow down to, but something that might be a thing that draws our attention for devotion. Now, some even have a problem with uh, displaying something like a cross within the church because the cross itself can become an object of worship because of what it represents, and that's a part of the discussion as well. Rob, you had your hand up. Well, you've, you've actually, you've nailed, you've, you've put your finger right on the debate. Um, and this is the, this is the conversation that has gone on since the beginning of, of the church. Um, is God saying no images whatsoever? Or is he saying don't make images that become objects of worship? Or if you have this, that it doesn't become a, an object of devotion. And so that's a good question. That's left for us to answer in terms of where we, where we land in all of that. Now, uh, I want to I share this, uh, this quote. Neil, uh, Neil Postman, some of you may be familiar. He, he died several years ago, but he's, uh, he, was a, um, he was Jewish, but not like practicing Jew. But he's a cultural, yeah, secular Jew. Thank you. Um, but like a cultural commentator, wrote some very fascinating, helpful books as a sociologist. But... He wrote this. I thought this was fascinating. He, he, as a non-believer, he talked about the second commandment this way. He said, In studying the Bible as a young man, I found intimations of the idea that forms of media favor particular kinds of content and therefore are capable of taking command of a culture. I speak specifically of the Decalogue, the second commandment of which prohibits the Israelites from making concrete images of anything. The God of the Jews was to exist in the Word and through the Word, an unprecedented conception requiring the highest order of abstract thinking. Iconography thus became blasphemy so that a new kind of God could enter a culture. People like ourselves who are in the process of converting their Word Center to an image center might profit by reflecting on this mosaic injunction. I think that is profound insight from a secular-minded person that he recognizes that one of the reasons we have the second commandment is because God has revealed himself purposely through word and not through image. Why? A lot of reasons why, but the one that Postman points out is that we know, and my goodness, this was written 25 years ago, even more so now, how easily our hearts are drawn to these types of media, these types of presentations in such a way that they captivate us and capture our devotion. And so much so that um, I was just doing a lot of reading this week and listening to an interview about this. These guys were talking about the reality that um, even, even reading itself, reading fiction or poetry or anything else is in sharp decline in our culture. Uh, over 10 years, there was a 12% drop in, uh, in those who said that they'd read a book in the last five years. Now, a, a, a book in five years, a 12% drop, and it's down into the 30th percentile now among American adults that within the last five years have read a book of any kind. Um, and that obviously doesn't play out well uh, in, uh, in the lower ages uh, especially. Um, so if you think about that in relationship to God communicating himself to us in word as opposed to the things that are captivating everyone's attention, which is constant streaming services to watch your favorite Disney movie from the past 
albeit now edited on Disney+, Plus, um, to watch uh, Netflix all day, every day, to watch uh, one of your 300 television channels, uh, to, uh, to scan through and look at memes on Facebook, or to watch someone's silly video on YouTube. Uh, this has become the mode of communication where God has not only communicated by his word, but says in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. And so this whole idea of word or logos is essential to who God is and how he has communicated himself to us. And so to set that aside in any way and say, well, let's, let's dabble in this realm of depiction, I think puts us on some uh, some thin ice in my mind because we're getting away from how God intended for us to understand and to uh, know about him. Yeah. It's never the same, yeah. Lord of the Rings is a disaster. Yeah, we've, we've sort of shrunk God to a more manageable image for ourselves, right? Yeah, good. We're out of time. Or I'd love to keep talking about this, but we've got to go. So let's pray. Father, thank you again for our time together. Uh, a very helpful uh, discussion, I pray. Uh, this is working in our minds and our hearts as we think about you as we come to this time of worship. And we do pray, Lord, that uh, as we think upon the Lord Jesus, uh, that it would be void of any, um, anything that we're creating in our own minds, um, that we would not come to you as a people who are, are worshiping you as a manageable, controllable image of God, uh, but rather that we see you as you truly are in your word, in your grandeur, in your beauty, in your awesomeness, and in your power. And we thank you, Lord, uh, that you have revealed yourself in your word and that we can turn to your word to know you more and to walk more faithfully according to your word. And so we pray all of these things anticipating, Lord, that our time of worship will be sweet for your saints and will bring glory to you. And we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.